Well, if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to join me in the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning and looking at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 22. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22 will be our text this morning. And uh, it's a lot to get through, and we're going to work through it uh, bit by bit, but with the Word of God open now, let's pray and ask for His help in hearing it, and then we'll read the Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. We know that by it we have life, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. Would You take it now, Lord, and feed it to us that we might know Christ and experience with Him not just the sufferings of Christ, but the resurrection. Speak, O Lord, we pray, for Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Amen. This is the reading of God's <clears throat> holy and inerrant and inspired Word. Well, as Rick already mentioned in his announcements, 506 years ago this upcoming Tuesday, a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 points of disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and thus began a lifetime of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Luther was declared a heretic. He was excommunicated from the church. He had a bounty put on his head. He was threatened with death. He was locked up in a tower for years. He lost his pulpit. He watched his friends suffer and he himself suffered. Luther's life was one of perpetual danger and trial. He was assaulted on every side. 
Yet what caused him to suffer like this, to endure such suffering and loss and even false accusations about his relationship with God? Well, it was his unwavering commitment to the truth of God's Word and the authority of Jesus Christ. And in our text today, Peter aims to encourage the hearts of believers to suffer as exiles who do good rather than doing evil, to suffer as those whose reward is in heaven and not here on earth, as those who await their vindication in confidence that they will be united with Christ in a resurrection like His, as Paul says in Romans 6. So the question before us this morning is this, how do we suffer as exiles on earth? How do we approach suffering well in light of Christ and of Christ's experience? Well, Peter gives us three things to which we must commit ourselves if we're going to suffer well in the face of persecution. Three things that we must commit ourselves to if we're going to suffer well in the face of persecution. Number one, we commit ourselves to having a tender heart. Seems somewhat counterintuitive in the face of suffering, but we'll see why it's so important. Number two, we commit ourselves to a gentle defense. That seems like somewhat of a paradox in terms, but we'll understand momentarily why that's so important. But finally, we commit ourselves to Christ's authority, to Christ's authority, even in our suffering. Let's look at the first couple of verses together to see what it means to be committed to a tender heart in the face of suffering. Uh, I'm very thankful for the very first word in chapter 3, verse 8. Um, if, if you've been around me any length of time or most other pastors, you'll know that when we say finally, we probably have two and a half chapters yet to go. And Peter starts off that way, finally, all of you, he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Uh, Peter here, in saying finally, what he's not doing is introducing the conclusion of the book. Rather, he's tying together everything that he's already said in the previous chapters. This is his conclusion, we might say, to part one of 1 Peter. And when he does that, it cues us into the reality that Peter here is not talking about the suffering of a bad diagnosis, although there's certainly a relationship between how a Christian thinks about sickness and loss to how he or she thinks about persecution. But specifically here, Peter is talking about the suffering that results from faith in Christ. It's the suffering for faith in Christ that these elect exiles that he writes to, chapter 1, verse 1, experience, and that we should expect to experience at some point as well. Remember chapter 2, Peter dealt with those who suffer unjustly or those who do good and yet suffer anyway. Chapter 3 talks to wives of unbelieving husbands, which we can only imagine, many of us, that that would be a hardship to endure. And the hardship is there because of faith in Christ. The wife's faith is in conflict with the husband's lack of faith, and there's suffering that is experienced there. And so, Peter now is wrapping all that together when he says, finally, and he wants to encourage our hearts 
with how we should suffer, not just under oppressive uh, regimes or with uh, uh, difficult employers or taskmasters or even with difficult spouses, but now especially in every circumstance. Notice who he writes to. Finally, all of you, he says, young and old, men and women, slave and free, all of you, as we move through this text, it's important for us to remember that what Peter is saying here, he's saying to each of us, not just to the wives of disobedient husbands, not just to those who have a difficult boss or a co-worker who treats them poorly or a government that lets them down, all of us. And so our young people here today, we have some young children here in the congregation, whether you're very young and don't have any idea what persecution even means, or perhaps some of our college-age young people who are here are getting ready to go off to college, you're going to go places and experience the difficulties of having your faith ridiculed, of being an open, professing Christian and that costing you something. And perhaps some of you have already experienced this. You've experienced it with your friends or on your sports team or with your community that you live in or perhaps away at school or in some other context. Even our young people, you need to know that Peter is speaking to you and he's telling you how to be prepared for those moments when your friends will fail you and foes will assail you. Don Carson, the great New Testament theologian, once said that if you haven't suffered yet in this life, it's just because you haven't lived long enough yet. It's coming. And how do we prepare for it? And how do we endure it? Well, these first few verses, he talks about these characteristics, the character traits of one whose citizenship is in heaven. Uh, he marks out for us in verses 8, uh, especially in verse 8, the sort of posture or disposition of the one whose citizenship is somewhere else, who's been set apart from the world, who loves Christ. And he uses the terms brotherly love and sympathy and unity and humility, and these describe the holistic approach that a Christian person takes to life. Which is, as briefly as we can, what do they mean? United in mind, uh, he's speaking to the church, isn't he? And so the unity that we share in the church is principally centered on our shared faith, on our confession of faith, on the gospel and our love for Christ. It's important that we don't go beyond what Peter is saying here and come to the conclusion that the unity of mind means agreeing with everyone else in the church about all manner of things related to life. So, for example, <clears throat> I fear, especially in the Western church in America, that what we're finding are more and more homogenous churches where everyone votes the same way and thinks the same way about social matters and considers the same things appropriate and inappropriate, not recognizing the value of Christian liberty and so forth. And so, we have this sort of homogenous uh, 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 approach to the church that looks far different than what Peter's writing to here, doesn't it? He talks about the elect exiles dispersed all over the place. And there's something particularly beautiful about having people who are both on the right side of the aisle and on the left side of the aisle, if I can use that term, coming together in shared fellowship in Christ with each other. And we're, frankly, some of us are far too interested in correcting each other for bad political views than we are encouraging each other in our mutual faith. 
And Peter says we should be united in gospel purpose and in love for Christ, not in who we think should be necessarily the next elected official. He tells us to have sympathy with each other. Now, this makes sense to us in the church. Uh, we've read the passages that tell us that we should bear with uh, each other's, bear each other's burdens and weep with those who weep. We should have a sympathetic nature towards one another, praying for those who are suffering, which we often do. Our pastoral prayer often uh, takes up quite a bit of time to lift before God the needs of the brothers and sisters here in the church. But what about sympathy for the world? <clears throat> Do we have sympathy for the world, an evangelistic spirit inflamed by a knowledge that God's judgment is coming? Are we sympathetic towards those who are lost? Do we believe that all the warnings of God's vengeance against the wicked will come to pass, as Richard Sibbs once said? Do we remember the warnings of Scripture, and does that encourage our sympathy for the lost that we might live evangelistically? When Jesus looked out at the crowds, crowds of people who were really following Him because they wanted more food and to watch more tricks, He had compassion on them, didn't He? He sat His disciples down and He said, look at them. Look at them all. Most of them have no idea who I am, and yet there's the field, white for harvest. Pray that the Father would send laborers out into the harvest field. Do we have sympathy for those outside of the church? Of course, inside, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we suffer together, but is our sympathy self-centered and inward-focused? Peter tells us to have brotherly love. <clears throat> That's the sort of camaraderie that we experience in the church. We love God's people because they are with us in Christ. And this is especially true as we consider the suffering that Christians will endure at the, uh, for the sake of Christ. It's those of the family of God who will experience the suffering alongside us, and so we demonstrate brotherly love towards them with anticipation that we'll receive the same sympathy and brotherly love in our suffering. But this has to be universal in scope, more than local in scope. It's not just the believers here at Christ Covenant Church who suffer or will suffer. It's Christians around the globe who are suffering now. And we love our brothers and sisters in the pew. I look out at many faces here with a deep affection for so many of you that I've grown to know so well over the years that we've been here together. But what about Christians elsewhere? Who we might say, if I can use this term, not to minimize any of the real experiences of anyone here, but what about those Christians who are really suffering right now? What about the Christians in North Korea who are being killed because they love Christ? Or the Christians in China who see their Bibles taken and thrown into fires and removed from their hands, and they have to hide underground? There's a story of a, of a missionary who took a duffel bag full of Bibles to China to try to share them with the church, and they had this underground meeting, and there were some 40 pastors there in attendance, and he handed out the Bibles, and to his horror, he heard the sound of paper ripping. And he thought, I, I put my life on the line to bring these Bibles here, and he looked, and they're pulling pages out of the Bible, and he said to the translator, what are they doing? And he said, oh, they can't get caught with a whole Bible, so they take a book each and preach from it and then share it with the next guy when they're done. What about the Christians, dare I say, in Palestine who suffer because they love Christ? It's universal, the brotherly love and sympathy we ought to have. And we're humble in mind, he says. Don't think too highly of ourselves. 
You know, it's when we begin to think too highly of ourselves that suffering becomes increasingly difficult, isn't it? When we think, I don't deserve this. I thought my relationship with Christ ran, rescued me from all this stuff. I get that people in the past and the early Christians were thrown to lions and stuff, but that's all in the past, isn't it? Why am I suffering like this? When we start to think of ourselves as exalted in the kingdom of God, as better than believers around the world, as if being an American Christian guarantees us privileges and freedoms that Chinese Christians and Korean Christians don't have. And of course, God's sovereign over there, but we're expecting some real work here so we can maintain our freedom. Oh, we need to be humble in mind about what it means to be the church, not the American church. All of these things, I believe, are summarized under uh, uh, Peter's fourth description here of the Christian person in suffering. It's being tender-hearted. Tender-hearted hearts love other people. Tender-hearted hearts have sympathy towards other people. Tender-hearted hearts are humble. It's the tender heart that suffers with those who suffer and is moved to pray for those in need. Think about Moses, as Hebrews tells us that it was his tender heart that melted when he saw his brother's affliction in Egypt, and he chose to be counted among them rather than Pharaoh's people. It was the tender heart of Nehemiah that broke when he considered the state of Jerusalem and those who were left behind in Israel, who even put his life on the line to ask the king for permission to go. It was the tender heart of Paul that said that he would rather be accursed than see any of his brothers in the flesh cut off from Christ. Do you hear the willingness to suffer alongside of others wrapped up in these examples? And not just that, but the evangelistic interest in these examples. It's the tender heart that moves us to suffering, that moves us towards the lost, that drives us to our knees in prayer. It's the tender heart that has a disposition to not repay evil, because there's no evil in my heart to repay with. To not repay reviling with reviling, because there's no reviling in my mouth to repay with. But on the contrary, the tender heart blesses, because to this we've been called. Those who are tender-hearted turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and know that their blessing is from God who opens his ears to our prayer. Are you tender-hearted? This is the character needed to suffer well, to suffer for our faith, to endure the persecution that so many Christians now and throughout history have endured. We're called to tenderheartedness like Christ. As we've already mentioned, his posture towards his enemies was tender. Father, forgive them as the rusty nails were embedded in his arms and in his feet, as his flesh had been pierced and his brow had been scarred and ripped open by the crown of thorns, as the beating he took prior to his crucifixion, uh, 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 doctors will tell us in considering the amount of abuse that he took, that it may have been that some of his internal organs were exposed through his flesh. As he hung on the cross, having the power of 12 legions of angels at his disposal. And his words were, forgive them? Are we tender-hearted towards others? That allows us to suffer well when we know who we really are and what our Savior has suffered for us. Well, tender heart leads to gentle interactions with our persecutors, or it should. 
And this might be the most timely word in Peter's letter, in my opinion, as he tells us to commit ourselves to a gentle defense. I have grown quite weary in recent years, as I hope you have, of all of the vitriol coming from professing Christians towards those who oppose the Christian world and life view, of what can only be classified as hate pouring across the lips of Christian men and women. I can't imagine that you're unaware of this. Online, it's especially prevalent. The speech coming from professing Christians is so wicked and offensive and evil and reviling, it's enough to make the most hardened marine blush. Repaying reviling with reviling, speaking evil towards those who speak evil about us. It's as though the Christian church has somehow collectively decided that the wrath of man indeed might produce the righteousness of God. If only we can belittle and demean and argue and embarrass our foes into the kingdom. As if evangelism means the louder we get, the more likely people are to believe. Perhaps that's not the issue. Perhaps the issue is not that we think that getting louder will win the day. Perhaps the issue is that we don't care about the lost souls who oppose us. Who cares if they get saved? So long as we own them online, so long as we dominate them in forums or at public protests or in private conversations about people who aren't even there to explain their perspective. Maybe we don't care that the lost are awaiting the wrath of God, the judgment of God who are going to be washed away as in the days of Noah like a flood. Have we forgotten Paul's appeal to Christ and his gospel sermon before Felix in Acts chapter 24 or Agrippa in Acts chapter 26? Have we forgotten Jesus' quiet manner in Pilate's presence when he had all the right and authority to defend himself and said nothing? Or have we forgotten the second half of 1 Peter 3.15? 1 Peter 3.15, most of us know this one. It's that apologetics proof text. Proof text, be ready to give an apologia, a, a defense for the hope that's within you. There it is. Be ready to defend your faith. I don't contest that that's what Peter's telling us to do. But for some reason, we've forgotten what the second half of the verse says. Do it in all caps. No, it says, do it with gentleness and respect. Respect for persecutors, for people who speak evil about us, for people who revile us and hate us and call us wicked, for people who would see us killed. Respect, yes, because they're image bearers. Because they've been made in the image of God. And because as Charles Spurgeon said, if God had painted a yellow stripe down the back of all of his elect, I'd be running around England lifting people's shirts up. But since he hasn't, I'm obligated to preach the good news to everyone because the gospel call is universal. Because Jesus says, anyone who is weary, come to me. Anyone who professes Christ will be saved. Anyone who's hungry and thirsty, come and eat and drink without price. Yes, give a defense. Yes, give a defense. But with gentleness and respect. That you might have a good conscience before God. So even if they continue to revile you, it won't be because you've given them a reason 
two things that I think need to be said uh, to conclude this point. Number one, we are to offer a reason, but what the text tells us to do is to offer a defense for our hope. The context here is suffering. The expectation is that the person who needs to know about your hope is the one persecuting you. The one standing there belittling you and bad-mouthing you and mocking you and scorning you, that unbelieving husband wives who laughs at you every time you get ready in the morning to go to church and laughs at you still when you come home having rejoiced in the Lord on the Lord's day. It's that person who needs your hope. It's the person who hates you who needs to be put to shame because you don't hate them back. Suffering in the midst of persecution is when our hope shines brightest. Polycarp of Smyrna, the second century church father, said this as he was about to be burned at the stake. He was told to renounce his faith in Christ, and this is what he says, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? That's hope. Do you know what Polycarp then did, according to legend? He held himself to the stake without a rope around him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appealed to God's faithfulness and His love for them at the fiery furnace, didn't they? Their hope was in God's power. He can save us if He wants to, but even if He doesn't, our hope is in Him, and we'll be with Him, and He won't let us down. Daniel did the same when he was cast to the lions. He comes out of the lion's den the next morning, and Darius says, Daniel, are you in there? And Daniel says, yes, now it's their turn. No, he doesn't. He trusts himself to God's judgment. He doesn't revile those who almost cost him his life, but he placed his hope in Christ. Are we, in times of persecution or ridicule or mockery, willing to appeal to Jesus' love and faithfulness, faithfulness to us in our suffering, or are we rather inclined to rise up and defend ourselves rather than defend Christ? Are we ready to give a defense for Christ or simply to be defensive? This defense of our hope is not disconnected with evangelism. It's more than just apologetics and the two guys on a stage duking it out over creation versus evolution. It's rather that God's will in you gently defending your hope is that some might hear it and be put to shame for their persecution. In other words, convicted that they are wrong and that Christ is real. Yes. Don't miss this, kids. Peter's still talking to you. He's still talking to you, children. You need to know this as you go off to college. You need to know this as you play on your sports teams with your friends who don't love the Lord Jesus. You need to know this as you go, attend schools and get jobs and all the places where you're going to be persecuted for your faith and confronted for it, that Peter wants you to be gentle and be respectful to the people who would ridicule you, that he wants even, because God has prepared praise out of the mouths of even babies. He's still talking to all of you. 
And this verse, by the way, this is one of those ones that we love to do this. We read our Bibles and we say, okay, I like this. Put away malice and deceit. I'll work on that. Long for pure spiritual milk. Yes, help me, Lord. Long for pure spiritual milk. Uh, Give a defense. Nope, that's for theologians. Let's uh, take that one out and plop it down over here in the special group of texts that's just for people who go to seminary. But Peter doesn't give us that option. This is for the Christian. This is for the person here in this room who feels convicted of their sin today and prays in repentance that God would forgive them and comes to faith in Christ today and goes home and calls their parents today and says, I became a Christian. And when your parents said, what is the matter with you? Why would you believe that stuff? It's so foolish. You say, because I have hope that Jesus was raised from the dead and he's going to bring me home to glory. It's for the person who becomes a Christian today. Be ready to give a defense for the hope because you have hope in Christ Jesus. And frankly, we only have hope in Christ Jesus. Be ready to tell people that your hope is in Jesus because his promises are sure. He'll never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't matter what you're facing, what difficulty you're enduring, what problem you're wrestling through, what uncertainty you can't see through, what relationship that's broken, that you're trying to reconcile what sins you've committed, what you'll do tomorrow. Jesus loves you and will never forsake you. And because he's in control of even the persecution and sufferings and difficulties you face, you can have joy in suffering, hope in trial. We remember that God's providence extends to every particular thing, even the hard things. It's unmistakable that we're called to suffer with the right sort of character, with a tender heart. Indeed, it's the only way to endure suffering. We're also called to be gentle in our interactions with those who would revile us for our faith, to be ready to defend our hope, but to do it in a way that doesn't cause our conscience to accuse us of unchrist likeness But the bedrock of our ability to suffer is based on Christ's authority, on Christ's authority. Now, as we come to this last paragraph, verses 18 through 22, we approach what is widely considered to be one of the most technical, excuse me, technical and difficult passages in all of the New Testament. And I'm sure that among us right now are many people who are going, ooh, technical and difficult. I can't wait to have all my questions about who are the spirits in prison answered. As much as I hesitate to gloss over this text, I hesitate even more to try to explain all of its intricacies. And here's the reason why. Because I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. In other words, I don't want to miss Christ for the spirits in prison. I don't want us to leave here not thinking about how Christ is our confidence and hope. And we'll address some of these things, but I do want our time in this last paragraph to be focused on Christ, on what it means that his authority builds us up and strengthens us in suffering. I want to summarize this last uh, passage like this. We can endure suffering as exiles because Jesus has already endured suffering for us. 
which resulted in his exaltation, and we who are in Christ will experience that same exaltation through the power of his resurrection. One more time. We can endure suffering as exiles because Jesus has already endured suffering for us, which resulted in his exaltation. And we who are in Christ will experience that same exaltation through the power of his resurrection. Notice that Christ alone has suffered in righteousness. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, speaking explicitly here about the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. When Job is experiencing his suffering at the hands of Satan, who, of course, we know is on the leash of God, uh, Job's friends, one of his friends, make this, makes this statement. He says, has a righteous man ever suffered? And in saying that, he's mocking Job. He's saying to Job, you're clearly not righteous because good people don't experience bad things. And this is obviously a consequence of some sin you've committed, some thing you've done wrong. But the answer to his question, has a righteous person ever suffered, is quite clearly no, because there's no one righteous except for one. Jesus alone suffered in righteousness. Jesus alone experienced suffering unjustly. Peter, once again, wants us to have a right opinion about ourselves. Whenever we suffer without a humble mind, we begin to question why we deserve this. When we realize that the only person who has truly ever suffered in complete righteousness is Christ, it reminds us that the question isn't why are we experiencing this trial, it's why is this the only trial we're experiencing? Christ alone has suffered in righteousness, and He did it, brothers and sisters, for us who are unrighteous. He did it for us. We remember that Christ's suffering was on our account and that we did not deserve it. While we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we boast in our own strength or righteousness? How can we act like we don't deserve anything that comes our way? How can we lose sympathy for our persecutors as if we're better than they are? If you recall after 9-11, one of the difficulties, especially in the Christian church, was this uh, sort of, it, it became this uh, overwhelming sense of uh, fear and even hatred towards Arab peoples and especially Muslim people. It was a very difficult time for Muslim people in America and for people of Middle Eastern descent because so many people became immediately both afraid and angry at them all. And I remember a friend of mine who was a bit of a mentor to me back in the day who said something to this effect that really hit me right between the eyes, uh, speaking of so many Christians' disdain for Muslims, he said, they're not our enemy, they're victims of the enemy. Christ alone suffered in righteousness. We are all unrighteous, each one of us. 
And Christ's suffering then for us, the unrighteous, is the foundation of our ability to suffer well. Christ's suffering was also redemptive and evangelistic. This is important for us to remember that when we experience suffering and we participate with Him in some way in the sufferings that He experienced as our union with Christ is magnified in our experience and our participation with Christ in His work is is, uh, front and center in our view, we remember that Christ's suffering for us was to bring us to God. Verse 18. Christ's suffering was to bring us to God. Are we willing to suffer for the sake of other people's redemption? Not that you and I affect redemption or can redeem anyone, but that God might use our suffering and our trials and misery to draw people to Himself. The 16th century Oxford martyrs Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley knew that their suffering was for the sake of Christ's witness into the future in England. As they were being chained to the stake to be burned, Latimer said to Ridley, be of good cheer and play the man. We shall this day by God's grace light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. They knew that their suffering like Christ's was for the blessing of others. Their death was meant by God for a blessing to many And are we willing to suffer for the sake of others in a redemptive way, in an evangelistic way, to share in Christ's sufferings for people who are yet unborn? One of my favorite people in all the Bible is the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. Do you remember her name? Of course you don't, because the Bible doesn't tell us. It tells us three things about her. It tells us that she was poor, that she suffered, and that she had faith. She's nameless. Her name is lost to history. She's nobody to anybody but us. And she endured 12 miserable years as an outcast from the church, as an outcast from her family, as an outcast from the community, as a pariah on society just to reach out her hand and touch touch Christ's garment. So thousands of Christians throughout the ages could be encouraged by her faith. How many among us have looked to her example of a little bit of faith in the midst of a trial as strength in our own difficulties? Are you willing that you should suffer that someone hundreds of years from now might look at your example of faith? Is Christ's covenant church willing to endure persecution that in history, future, yet to be written, people will look back and say, they held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution as the nation around them crumbled and it became harder and harder to worship, that their voices got louder and louder in song before God because they knew that the only hope that they had was in Jesus Christ who had saved them. Are we willing to suffer persecution like that? Because Christ did for us. That's the foundation of our suffering. Are we able to endure suffering as citizens of heaven, knowing that Christ's authority extends even over our suffering? Verse 22, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and everything, angels, authorities, powers, and all, having been subjected to Him. 
Well, lastly, we know in our suffering that Christ will bring His people safely through the waters of God's judgment. Peter here refers to the days of Noah when people formerly did not obey and God's patience waited during the hundred years that Noah constructed the ark and that just a few people, eight, through, eight people were brought safely through the water of God's judgment. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Not because it removes dirt from your body, not because there's any virtue in water, but because of what it signifies. Because the waters of baptism are a sign and a seal to us of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. The promise on the one hand that the judgment of God's water abides on the head of all those who are outside of Christ. But that in Christ, that flood of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus that we might come through the ark that is Christ into a new life in heaven. It's not that the sacrament applied saves. It clearly doesn't say this. Water, which corresponds, not, not, now saves you, not because it washes dirt off your body, but because it's an appeal to God of a good conscience. That means of a relationship with God that's aware of and accepting of the promises held forth to us in baptism. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration as some do. Rather, we understand that baptism signifies that Christ, our surety, has taken our punishment. All the suffering that we deserve for eternity was rested on His head. And when we lay hold by faith of the promises held out to us in baptism, we're saved because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much bolder would we be if we believed all that Peter says here? That we cannot lose Christ's love for us. That He died for our sins to bring us to God. That He has promised us an inheritance of blessing in eternity forever. That He hears our prayers. That He suffered and died and was buried. And that on the third day He was raised again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the meantime, He rules in wisdom, power, and holiness over all His creatures and all their actions. And that includes the suffering that we experience in this life. How would your life be different if you suffered like Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ who suffered once for our sins, that we might experience the power of His resurrection and vindication when we will be openly acquitted before Your throne and welcomed into the full blessing of Your presence forevermore. Help us to suffer well. Give us tender hearts, gentle spirits, and a good conscience as we lay hold of the promises of our baptism by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.